0: Well, friends, we are in the third of three sermons through the book of Habakkuk this morning. We've been spending some time in the Minor Prophets as a church this summer, which has been a joy. We rejoice as a congregation that the entire scripture, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is a witness about Jesus Christ, and we have gotten to see that from Jonah and now from Habakkuk. And we trust from Obadiah in the weeks to come, should the Lord give those to us. Just a couple of questions for you by way of introduction. Do you ever struggle and wrestle with how things go in this world? Legit question. Do you ever look around at the things that occur to other people and struggle with how things go? Do you ever look at your own life? Do you ever sit and think, this is hard and I don't know what to make of this? If your answer to either of those questions is yes, then I assume that you're interested in what we're going to talk about today. Have you ever been in a place, another question, where in an earthly sense you look around and you're like, there is no good whatsoever. And everything from an earthly perspective seems lost. Have you ever been there? If your answer to that question is yes, then I trust you will be interested in what we're going to consider today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3 in its entirety, verses 1 to 19 today. As you're turning to Habakkuk 3, just a few comments very briefly by way of some overview. We've considered these each week, but it's good to just keep these things in our minds. Habakkuk, we recall, is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. He is prophesying, he is writing sometime between 609 B.C., when King Josiah's reign ends and King Jehoiakim takes the throne, and then the siege on the part of the Babylonians when they conquered Jerusalem in 586. So we're talking 609 to 586 BC in terms of the time frame. The Babylonian conquering of Jerusalem is on the horizon. Habakkuk we have considered is very unusual as a prophetic book because this prophet in this book never speaks to a human being. He never publicly addresses a person. The book is completely a dialogue, an interchange between the prophet and God. In the first two chapters, where we've spent our time up to now, Habakkuk brings his complaints to God. And the Lord actually responds. Hears his prophet, condescends in kindness and mercy to give his prophet an answer. Twice twice. The first complaint that Habakkuk raises in the very beginning of chapter one pertains to how sinful the Judeans are, pertains to how bad things are within the kingdom of Judah. Morally, spiritually, it's a disaster. And Habakkuk asks God, are you going to do anything about this? Do you see what is going on? How long do I need to come to you about all of the injustice and yet you don't act? And the Lord responds that he's doing a thing that if Habakkuk was told about it, he wouldn't believe it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment against Judah. And Habakkuk responds, as we've considered, two weeks in a row. He says, Lord, I don't know about that. I mean, I understand that we deserve judgment. I understand that because of our sin, we deserve a measure of your judgment, but the Babylonians, really, they are far worse than we are. The cure is far worse than the disease. This does not make sense. You are holy. How could you use a people so wicked? To which the Lord responds effectively, I will make it right. I will execute judgment on the Chaldeans in time. If it seems slow, wait for it. And the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in me and faith in my promises. That's where we've been. And so now... As we turn our attention to chapter 3, what we have is a final response of the prophet Habakkuk. It is a response in the form of a prayer, and this prayer is it's a psalm, it's a hymn that he has written. He's written this in light of the dialogue that's occurred in chapters 1 and 2, but he's also, it's going to become plain in our text today, he's written this prayer, this psalm, as he's contemplated the work of God on behalf of his people in the past. So with all that, by way of just introductory comment, let's look to the text now. Let's look to this prayer of Habakkuk, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionas. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Sila. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan today is very simple. It's not even really much of a plan. I don't have a a very firm outline for you, so if you're a note-taker and you cling to outlines, we'll pray for the Lord's grace for you today. Because all we're going to do is we're going to make our way through the text, we're going to survey it, I'm going to make some observations as we go, and then after that, the second half of the sermon is going to effectively be one long connected point of reflection and meditation and application. I don't want to divide it up, because I think you will track with me, and I want us to not lose the forest for the trees, okay? Okay? So here we go. Let's look to the text together. Verse 1. It serves as a header. Just in a word of instruction. As I mentioned already, this is a prayer. It's a hymn of the prophet Habakkuk in the form of a psalm. There are instructions. We understand this because there are instructions about how to perform it for corporate worship. So you see that in verse 1. According to Shigioneth, most likely is a musical consideration. And then at the very end, at the tail end of verse 19, we read, to the choirmaster with stringed instruments. Again, instruction about how this would be performed. In verse two, we have an introduction of sorts, an invocation as well. Habakkuk says that he has heard about the Lord and about his work. He says that he fears the Lord's work, and here fear, again, think reverence, think awe. I'm in awe of your work. I've heard the report of it. I'm in awe of it. And it seems that the Lord's mighty works in the past are what is in view here. Look at the very next sentence. He says, in the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. I've heard the report of you. I fear, I, in reverence, I'm in mean, all of your works. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. Work again like you've worked in the past. That's what he's saying. That's an invocation. You realize that when we pray prayers of invocation at the beginning of our services, what are we doing? We're asking the Lord to come, to be with us, to minister, to work. That's what he's doing here. Work, Lord, like you did in the days of Moses. Work, Lord, like you did in the days of Joshua. And in wrath, remember mercy. That's quite a shift. If we've been tracking with the prophet's mind here. We resonate with Habakkuk. We have justice meters that go off all the time. We accuse God of all kinds of things. We bring complaints to him, like Habakkuk has. We often suggest ways that The Lord could run the world because we presume we could do better. But notice the shift in Habakkuk's mindset. Before he was complaining, where's your justice? Where is your wrath against sin? How long are you just going to look at all of this craziness and not do anything? But now, having heard the Lord's response regarding the Chaldeans and having contemplated the mighty works of the Lord in the past, he prays something quite different. It seems that the prophet has taken his eyes off of himself, off of Judah, off of the Chaldeans, and has contemplated the Lord's holiness and the Lord's righteousness as he reigns over a world of sin. The Lord will act in justice in righteousness, in holiness, which means he will act in wrath against evil. That's clear. And the Lord had revealed long before Habakkuk ever showed up that he is the God of mercy. And so Habakkuk says, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. And that's a prayer, by the way, that the Lord will most certainly answer. Because Habakkuk is simply asking the Lord to act in a way that is consistent with his character. Brief observation here. Just a thought about prayer for us. This is another example of how prayer is a way that the Lord conforms our wills to his. Not sure if you've thought about prayer like that. This is a great purpose of prayer, that our wills would be conformed to God's, not that his would be bent to ours. This is always helpful to remember, but perhaps even more so when like Habakkuk, you pray and you don't get the answer that you want. What are you going to do? In verses 3 to 15, we have a vision of the Lord. This vision depicts the Lord coming as a great warrior in order to save his people. The language that Habakkuk uses is poetic. And it picks up on ways that the Lord has acted on behalf of his people in the past. So as you survey these words, I'm going to try to make these things plain. But in your mind, think Mount Sinai. Think the Exodus. Think the conquest of Canaan where the Lord went before his people to conquer their enemies. In verses 3 to 10, Mount Sinai and the Exodus are in particular view. We read that the Lord came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Those are both areas that are in the Sinai wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula. God's splendor, as we read in verse 4 and following, God's splendor and power were on full display at Sinai. Lightning and thunder. The mountain itself shook. The earth quite literally did tremble. Pestilence and plague mentioned in verse 5 depict divine judgment. That's common language in the scripture. And we know that the Lord brought some plagues, particularly upon the nation of Egypt, in rescuing his people from slavery there. We read about Cushan and Midian. They were tribes living in the area of the Sinai Peninsula. They saw God's power on display and were wrecked with fear. So, this is what the prophet is describing in his poetic language. Then, in verse 8, he asks, Lord, was your wrath against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Because the Lord had done some things, some mighty things with rivers. He had turned the Nile River into blood, you remember. And then as God's people were making their way into the promised land, the Jordan River was parted so that the people could walk through as on dry ground. Was your indignation, was your wrath against the rivers? Or was your indignation against the sea? In particular, the red one. I mean, you were talking about turning something upside down and inside out. The Lord literally made the water of the sea stand up as walls so that His people could walk through. He had done a thing at the Red Sea. Was your indignation against the sea? Final part of verse 8. What a beautiful depiction this is. Was your indignation against the rivers? Was your wrath against the seas? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation. What a great image of what the Lord was doing in leading his people through the Red Sea. He led them out on his chariot of salvation. He was working deliverance for them. Like Moses says to them in Exodus 14 14, he says, You're not going to do anything. All you need to do is be silent because the Lord will fight for you. Yes, he did. The Lord reigns in power over the created order. And he put that to use and on display in working salvation for his people. That's what Habakkuk is describing. In verses 11 and 12, it's very clear that the conquest of Canaan is in view. You see in verse 11, there's language about the sun and the moon standing still. Many will be familiar with Joshua chapter 10 and the victory that was secured at Gibeon because the Lord made the sun stand still until the victory could be complete. God in these verses is depicted as a great warrior with bow and spear and he marched Verse 12, through the earth in fury, threshing the nations like wheat. Indeed, he had. He had gone before Israel to conquer the peoples of Canaan on their behalf. And then in verse 13, what a verse this is. What was God doing in all this? We read that he was going out for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed. That's a reference perhaps to the covenant people, or more particularly, he's going out for the salvation of his king. And then these words You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Where have you heard that before? Verse 14. The Lord pierced the heads of the warriors of the wicked with the wicked's own arrows. And one can't help but think of the fact that David cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's sword. The Lord had done mighty things on behalf of his people in the past. In verse 15, he tramples over the sea and over the mighty waters. Again, a reference to his mighty works of deliverance in the Exodus. So this is what Habakkuk's describing. Poetic language rooted in the works of God in history. History. And then in verse 16, we have a transition. Verse 16 really should should be lumped more with verses 17 to 19. It's a sadness where the headings are put sometimes in our scripture. So Habakkuk writes of himself here. He says that he hears and his body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, he says. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. It seems that he is writing of his reaction to what's going to happen to Judah. The Babylonian invasion is in view. The siege of Jerusalem is in view. The Lord has told him it would happen and he's writing of his response to that. Look at the following sentence. It fits. He says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He says, In spite of how he feels, like he's he's describing how he feels and it's not good. Strong language of terror, horror at what will happen. Yet he says he will quietly wait for judgment to come upon those who invade Judah. I will wait for you to do what you said you would do in bringing judgment upon the Chaldeans. Habakkuk has decided for his part to wait on the Lord to avenge. He's going to write more of this in a poetic way in the following verses. A brief observation here for us. In all of this, notice, living in faith, which is what the Lord has called Habakkuk to, and which it seems Habakkuk is prepared to do, to live in faith in the Lord and in the Lord's promises, does not mean that there will not be trembling, that there will not be weakness and fear sometimes. There are scary and hard things in this life. You don't need me to tell you that. There are things that lie in front of us sometimes that we're, like, I, if I could do anything about it, I'd rather not go through that. There are times that we say with the Apostle Paul that what we have gone through has caused us to despair of life itself. Yet we wait on the Lord. We trust in him and his promises to us, casting our anxieties and our burdens upon him. Why? Because he cares for us and he tells us to do that. Such is the life of faith. In verses 17 to 19, Habakkuk says that he will rejoice in the Lord and that the Lord is his strength. Certainly and clearly the Babylonian siege and captivity and exile and all of those things is in view here. Look at verse 17. Though the fig trees should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. This is dire. Everything is bad. All the crops, all the livestock are lost. It's not clear how anybody's going to survive. There quite literally is no earthly good. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, he says. He says. And I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So in spite of everything he's described, this is Habakkuk's posture. Notice again the change in this man. When the book began, he's telling God how to run the world and accusing the Lord of all kinds of things. And now, he's expressing trust in his God. And he's satisfied that this God, the Lord, is in fact just and faithful. And then in verse 19, He says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and he makes me tread on my high places. The Lord imparts strength and confidence to the righteous, to those who trust in him and in his promises. So now we're going to reflect. We're going to meditate. We're going to apply. And let me just kind of at the outset say a few things that are in my mind to help you track with me. So here are some things that we can cling to sort of headers that we can write down, and the rest of our time is going to be thinking about this. There will be suffering, calamity, and hardship in this life. That's not debatable. Yet, we can rejoice in the Lord, and he is our strength, and this is grounded in the fact that he has time and time again proven himself faithful. So that's where we're going. There will be calamity, hardship, and suffering in this life, Yet we can rejoice in the Lord and he is our strength. And this is because he has time and time again proven himself to be faithful. In all of this, I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't have a silver bullet. But we're going to look at who the Lord is and who he has revealed himself to be in the person and work of his son. So to begin, when it comes to the worst things in this life, and when I mean when I say, excuse me, the worst things, I mean the worst things. I don't mean minor trials. I don't mean hard days. I mean the worst things. The things that keep you up at night, the things you have nightmares about, that kind of stuff. There's a few choices we have in terms of how we might handle those things. One strategy that many employ is that we can deny them. We can seek to avoid them this is very common but it doesn't work you can plug your ears you can close your eyes you can turn the music up you can entertain yourself to death you can seek to distract yourself but trial and calamity and suffering will come refusing to face reality is not a wise or a mature way to deal with reality You don't even have to be a Christian to believe that. We're just talking about being an intellectually credible human being. Another strategy, another way that we can try to handle the worst things in life is we can just resign ourselves to them. We can say things like, well, you know, it's just a part of life and everyone suffers and terrible things happen. Everybody dies. I might as well be resigned to it. Kind of cynical, jaded perspective. Now, this might be better than screaming or pitching a fit in the face of suffering, but it still falls flat. It is, at best, just a kind of stoicism. Another approach is that we can just suck it up and overcome through bravado and sheer power of will. We will white-knuckle this thing. We'll be good soldiers and just press through that sounds great, sounds strong, just overcome. Pull it together, grit your teeth, keep your chin up, don't let anything get you down. Don't let the future scare you, don't let it depress you. The problem is, the kinds of things that we're talking about, the worst things, those are the things where our legs are already shaking, and our lips are already quivering, and we're standing in front of a tidal wave. No one would be in these situations, the worst things in life, if they could help it. And it's not something that you're going to overcome with willpower. All the pep talks and tough love in the world will not move the needle when it comes to this kind of stuff. That's where Habakkuk finds himself in verse 16. I'm trembling, my lips are quivering, like my bones are rotting away. This is how bad it is. Some of these that we've already outlined are approaches that people take, even people in the church, in thinking about the worst things in life. But there is a different way and a better one. And Habakkuk models it for us in our text. We stare calamity and suffering in the face. That's a good thing. We don't deny it. We don't dismiss it. We don't minimize it. We call it what it is. We weep and we grieve, yet we do not despair. And you might be thinking, all right, well, how? Like, help me with that. We begin by saying that we take this approach because we know that there is one who is greater than all these sufferings. One greater than all these calamities and one greater than all this pain. And he knows our name. And he's our savior. God has not promised us that we will not go through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, we will. But he has promised to be with us through it. He will never leave or forsake his people. And in the end, he will gather us to be with him forever. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Those are the words of Christ the last night he's on earth before his crucifixion. Peace I leave with you, he said. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, those are not empty words. This is where the rubber meets the road. Because those words are meaningful, they're moving, they're poetic. But are they empty? Because if they are, we're wasting our time. They're not empty words. It is not as though the Lord has not acted in great power over and over again to save his people in the past. He has put his money where his mouth is, as we would say. We look to God's past faithfulness so that we might be bolstered in our faith to trust Him in the future. You understand this. Because He has demonstrated who He is. He has shown us His character. He has shown us His power. He's shown us that He keeps all of His promises. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can trust Him. The Lord, as we say often here, He's a Redeemer. He's a Deliverer. He is the God of mercy. And he has consistently demonstrated himself to be those things. All right, so the greatest act of salvation, deliverance, redemption that's recorded in the pages of the Old Testament is what? It came up in our text today. The Exodus, right? Second greatest act of deliverance in the history of the world Think about the Exodus. Think about what happened there. Miraculous crossing of water. God then feeding people in the wilderness with food from heaven. Killing the firstborn in Egypt and passing over the firstborn in Israel because of the blood of a lamb. And then consider Jesus in His ministry on earth Think John 6, where he feeds a massive crowd of people in a desolate place with miraculous food. After that, he walks on water. Immediately after this, a miraculous water crossing. The one who accomplished the exodus had come. The one who delivered his people from bondage to slavery in Egypt had come in the flesh. And then there are words like Luke 9, 28 and following. You know the story of the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter and John and James and goes up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And then we read, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, both appearing in glory. Those two people are not insignificant. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, speaking with Jesus. Jesus. And what do they talk about? They talk about, literally, of his exodus, of his departure. The word in the original languages, they spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So you have Moses and Elijah in glory appearing to talk to Christ, and they're talking to him about his exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. This is right before we read about him setting his face like flint, To go to Jerusalem. What would he do there? He would suffer. He would die. He would do the work that he did on the cross in order to finish his work of redemption. Perfect life had been lived. Fulfilled the law. Perfect sacrifice made as a representative. The one who accomplished the exodus in Egypt would accomplish a greater one in Jerusalem. The one who delivered his people from bondage to slavery in Egypt, delivered his people once and for all from bondage to Satan and sin and death and hell. This is the testimony of the scriptures. We can trust him in the worst of times. Put your eyes back on Habakkuk 3.13, the second part of that verse. Again, have in your mind, how do I know that I can trust this God? The words. First part, you went out for the salvation of your people. Okay, got that. But then these words in particular. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. I asked you, where have you heard language like that before? You're thinking Genesis 3. The one, the seed of the woman who would come to bruise the head of the serpent... Fast forward from there. I I want us to see that this has always been God's plan. He is utterly faithful. He's been doing this. He will do it. We can trust him. Okay? Fast forward a number of centuries to maybe, I don't know, one of the top few most famous stories in all the Bible. David and Goliath. Everybody knows it. You don't have to be a Christian to know that story. Right? You've heard it. It's common. What? Idioms that we use. I was looking for the word. In our own colloquial speech, David and Goliath moments. We talk about it like sports and stuff. Very common, well-known story, but have we understood it rightly? The flannel board didn't help you. Your Bible storybooks didn't help you, and I don't mean to sound condescending. Consider these words. If you have your scriptures, you can turn to First Samuel 17. We're going to begin in verse 41, and we're going to read to verse 51. That way you can jot that down. Think about this. You went out and you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Has this always been God's plan? Yes, it has. What's David and Goliath about ultimately? And the Philistine, that's Goliath, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. You know the story. Nobody will fight Goliath. He's a mighty champion. No one will stand before him. He's the champion of the army of the enemies of God. And then there's this shepherd boy who's going to be a shepherd king who is a type of Christ who's going to go and fight this man. Verse 42, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. A shepherd king. A type of Christ who cuts off the head of the champion of the enemy of God's people. Jesus shows up centuries later and starts using language about no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he might indeed plunder his house. Colossians, the witness of the apostles, is that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We're not talking about earthly authorities here. We're talking about spiritual heavenly type authorities, right? Ephesians 4, Paul cites Psalm 68, that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jesus... Our great champion has defeated the great enemy of God's people who is the ancient serpent who is the devil. His name is Satan. He has bruised his head. He has bound him. He has plundered his goods. He has led a host of captives out. He set us free. He will come back and he will throw Satan into the lake of fire. From Genesis to 1 Samuel to the Gospels, to Revelation. It's what God has said is going to happen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And through all that, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He took on flesh, God the Son did, so that for us, He could destroy Satan and set us free. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. I'd say so. And because of Christ, because of Him, because of that work, we can say with Habakkuk that I'm trembling, my lips quiver at the thought of what may be coming, my legs shake, Even though everything looks terrible and there's no earthly good, everything seems to be going poorly. Yet, in light of that, I can trust the Lord. He's my strength. He establishes my feet. I will rejoice in the salvation that he has worked for me because none of that is tethered to my circumstance. And he has proven over and over again that he's faithful and that he's able to do this. Does that make you feel better immediately in the moment? Maybe not. But it's eternally helpful. Still thinking along these same lines. We're going to conclude our time. So keep these same trains of thought going. Public service announcement. There's a lot of Bible that I'm going to read for you right now. Sometimes this ends up happening in preaching. And that's a good thing. That we would understand the scriptures in light of the scriptures. The best illustrations and the best way to make a point. Is the divinely inspired stuff. Think about. The sufferings of this life, the suffering and the calamity that you know that the people of God have known and will know, should the Lord tarry. And then writes Paul, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, that is not a statement about the lightness of the sufferings. This is a man who will write that there are things that he's been through that caused him and all his companions to despair of life itself. So he's not saying that this is, everything's easy, you know, just deny the hardness because it's all great, because God's good. That's not how he's thinking. He's talking, though, about the comparative greatness of the glory that's coming. It's so great, we can't fathom it. By comparison, what we're going through is light and momentary. He goes on. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was not subjected to futility, or excuse me, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is what the Lord is doing. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The creation groans, we do too, this side of the resurrection. This is why we say, and why Paul would write, that if we hope in Christ for this life only, we are above all people the most to be pitied. Because this faith, this Christian life, is not about this one. It's about the one to come. For in this hope, the hope of the world to come, the hope of bodily resurrection, says Paul, in this hope we were saved. And now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You don't need to hope for what you see. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the Christian life now. Sounds familiar. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us, says Habakkuk. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I'll wait. For now we groan and we hope for things unseen and for things that are unshakable. So there are references in Habakkuk 3 to Mount Sinai in Habakkuk's prayer. To God's might being put on display there. Well, regarding what God did there, the writer to the Hebrews penned these words. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, he says to the saints, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is where you have come. That sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that word is mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. The writer of the Hebrews goes on, at that time at Sinai, the Lord's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. What's the conclusion? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And the saints say, Amen. In the good times and the bad, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In the face of the sufferings of this life, we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in the God of our salvation. And that's not happy, clappy denial. That's through tears, in the midst of pain, because of Christ, we confess that we've been given a kingdom. Because the Lord is our strength. And because Jesus has secured for us a kingdom, all will be well. And so we can say and we can sing today, which we're going to in a minute, that it is well with our souls. Let's pray.